0: You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about, actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property Even Though You're Scared Shitless.
1: And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property.
0: Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website, as well as Download our free, full, or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? The elephant in the au.
1: Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Boot Camp, and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is generally in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you are looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking.
0: We've had a number of conversations recently about population growth and what this means for our cities and the people who own property within these cities. We've been exploring the impact of strained infrastructure, the need for more homes, the problems created by poor urban design and problems with the design, construction and certification of new apartment buildings, the ramifications of which are really starting to ramp up at the moment. These conversations are important for existing apartment owners as well as future buyers. And as we know, population growth is one of the foundations underpinning sustainable capital growth. However, it's important that the type of housing constructed to meet demand is also sustainable in the long term. And we're also getting our heads around the idea that densification is necessary. What are the benefits of higher density living and can they be quantified? And what about the future of work? Is it possible that we'll all end up being decentralised anyway, and so the arguments in favour of increasing density could soon be redundant? In this episode, we're looking to economist Nikki Hutley for the answers. Nikki is a partner at Deloitte Access Economics, where she leads the urban advisory practice. Her experience has been gained over nearly three decades working in the field of urban economics, addressing issues such as affordable housing, social and economic infrastructure, investment, Urban renewal, precinct planning, climate mitigation, and social policies—who better to help us tackle the question of whether Australia's cities are full? Thank you for joining us, Nikki. It's my pleasure to be here.
1: Thank you, Nikki. I find myself um, every episode now saying I'm looking forward to it, and uh, yeah, I am and boring, Chris. I am actually <laughs> looking forward to this because we, we had a bit of a misfire last time. So one of the oh, biggest—and com- just
0: for the listeners—that means a diary conflict.
1: Diary conflict. But yes. we
0: sorted it out, and here she is. But we're
1: here. I guess one of the things that. We'd love to talk today about is population growth, and I know you've been quoted in the past saying it's a bit of a tricky piece of policy making. What's your thoughts around kind of population growth and all the challenges we have in doing it sustainably?
2: Yeah, it is um a real tricky one and one that people get very emotional and emotive about, um, particularly our politicians. You know we as as economists, we understand the benefits of population growth. If you just think about um, the sorts of skills that we import, you know, particularly in, a, in an age where um, IT and technology is so important to our economy, we only create about 5,000 new graduates every year. We need something like 75. Right. So we need to import these skills. We also have an ageing population. And if we get skilled people who are younger, that helps slow down the relative degree of ageing. And you can actually see its impact on Australia compared to other people. So hmm um it is important if we get people in that we get the right sorts of skills and migration of of those sorts of skilled workers um along with obviously you know humanitarian um efforts as well are important but that sort of combination actually gives us an economic benefit mm. but if we go too far then and too fast rather then we do place pressure on our infrastructure and you hear lots of people complaining about that and then we get the prime minister saying oh we need our congestion busting infrastructure yeah. Some of that is to do with the fact that we've had strong population growth compared to the rest of the world. Some of that is just to do with the fact that governments, state and federal, didn't have enough money to spend Mm. at the time and they fell behind. So you can't blame it all on population growth. And just saying Sydney's full or, you know, we're going to shut the gates is a a blanket approach that is actually going to have disbenefits, you know, negative consequences for everyone. So I always say to people, look, Think this through. Don't be emotive about it. Think through the full consequences. And, you know, it brings out some nasty sides to people too when you have this sort of debate. And we really have to sit down and rationally think about all the benefits that come and particularly for regional areas, you know, that particularly um, you know, refugee communities. We did some work at Access Economics around the um the benefits of in regional Victoria of the Karen refugees from from Burma, Myanmar. Yep. Um and you know, this adds to to the population um of the regions, which actually is helping their growth. It's actually people coming in with skills, mm. you know, creating jobs and creating more um you know, better economic outcomes for for local people. And if you ask people in Darwin or or in Adelaide, you know what they think about population, they'll say, "Yes, give us more, give yes. us more," because actually, yeah, you know, they're at risk of their economies shrinking mm. uh, because they're just losing too many people. To you know, we're getting this agglomeration impact, which is of course very important.
1: Yeah, you made two really. Interesting points around it. Firstly, that we've got a skill shortage in like, you know, it's very easy for people to understand technology, right? We've only got 5,000 graduates, but we need, you know, 50, 100,000 of them. So we've got a shortage there. Mm. Your second point though was around, um, we've got an aging population and what migration does is kind of fatten us up with younger people because that's generally when people come here, which stops us, our economy kind of, you know, having not enough workers, younger workers to cover people getting older. Why is that actually a problem though? Why is it a problem if we don't? keep filling our population with a lot of younger people?
2: So at the moment, we're heading to a situation where we are having increasingly fewer people in the workforce of workforce age for every person who is of retirement age. So if you think about it in the next sort of, I think it's 30 years, um, there will probably be only around three to four people working For every um, person who's of retirement age compared to almost double that at the moment. Wow. Um, And that's already shrunk a heap.
0: What's the optimum?
2: So, well, the more the merrier, basically, because if you think about it, when you're young, you tend to be healthier. You're out there in the workforce if you can get a job. As you get older, you're less healthy. You're likely to need more support. You're less likely to be working or working full time. So the older you get, the more you cost the economy. Mm -hmm. The younger you are, the more you put in. So we need young workers to be able to support old workers. And if, you know, I've got three kids in their 20s, you know, if they suddenly are in a situation in the next 10, 20, whatever years in their working life that they're supporting more and more age population, well, they're going to have to pay a lot more tax or else the standard of living for older people and the standard of care that we have is going to go down an awful lot, or some mm. combination of the two mm. is most likely.
0: And are there countries in the world that, that sort of demonstrate how that plays out?
2: Yeah, probably the the, the best example is is Japan, whose population yes. has been ageing for much longer. Um, and we can see, you know, the level of government debt there is the highest in the world, basically. Mm. Um Japan is, though, very fortunate in that other countries are very willing, and as as are Japanese people, to fund government debt. But it is a perennial problem for them as to how to raise enough revenue. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, I mean, the Japanese economy has all sorts of issues, but it's played out very um, obviously there. And even though the community there is much more family-focused and there's much greater respect for older people that, you know, you, you look after your, your parents no matter what, um you know basically you 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 won't get to the next level of 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 uh, of, of heaven basically if you don't do the right things <laughs> yeah. by your parents there's a cultural thing there as well whereas here we're kind of like oh well okay a bit old a bit hard you know off to the off Whatever. to the retirement, retirement village oh. <laughs> um so there's a very big cultural difference there mm-hmm. so that actually takes some of the burden yep. off but even so um society pays pays a strong price for that
0: yeah you mentioned about that we all have to think this through and i think Culturally in Australia, you know, we're actually dumbing down so much of our lives at the moment. So we're actually going, I think, culturally in the opposite direction to where we need to be going in order to thoroughly think all of this stuff through for our greater
2: good. Yeah, and one of the things that really worries me is talk about declining populations. We are now down to around 5,000 economics graduates a year from around 20,000 sort of 10, mm-hmm. 15 years ago. And the fewer people that have these skills, mm. um, you know, the worse off our sort of policy environment, policy yeah, decision making is going to be. Um last night I was at a at a talk and the Secretary of the Department of Education, Mark Scott, said, you know, e- economics makes better people. And I love that because you have this ability to look through what is the best decision for everybody. Mm. And obviously it's in our nature to say, well, what do I benefit? Yes. You know, where's mm. where's my tax cut? Where's this? Whereas economics helps you to look at What are the consequences for all society? And what does it mean for those who are more well-off? What does it mean for those who are struggling in society? Mm. How do we make things equitable? not saying we live in a socialist, communist era at all, but I'm just saying how do we make things so that the most people get the best benefit from things? And economics really helps us to look at problems, you know, very strategically. And, you know, I worry that we are, as you say, you know, yeah, as our prime minister, how good's this? How oh, good's no, I'm that? I mean, I'm sorry, but I just think I I loved Paul Keating and I hated him in many ways, but mm. I loved that mm. he, you know, he's talked about the banana republic. And suddenly, you know, this is 30 years ago, now when yeah. I was first starting out in my career, but people were talking about the current account deficit across the breakfast table. Yeah. Now, that was something that was good. Mm. It yeah. was pay- people understanding we had problems in our economy and we needed to t- make some hard decisions to to get the economy into a new frame of mind now we went through a lot of pain and you know the expression the, the recession we, we had, had to have was have, a yes. terrible expression mm. um lots of people lost their livelihood through it um and you know permanent lifetime uh, struggles as a result of it but we did come out at the end of that with a much stronger economy with a better industrial relations system with low inflation um entrenched in in this in in the mm. across the economy and a better understanding of people of, of what the consequences were for not getting the economy right. And we often say Australia was, you know, rode on the sheep's back. Mm. Well, we've been now riding on the, you know, the, I'd say the tractor back, you know, mm. for the mining sector for a long time now. And especially both before the global financial crisis, but more importantly, that helped us do much better after it mm. than many, you know, most of the rest of the world, basically. So, um, we do need to understand and we do need to educate people to say, this isn't a simple problem
1: mm. and it's
2: not something that you can fix or you can understand with a three-word slogan or a, a yep. simple answer. You know, Sometimes we have to do hard things to make things better. Mm.
1: But in your view though, do you think that, you know, there was a lot of talk around the, you know, in the New South Wales election recently that we're going to cut population growth and we're going to slow down and we're going to reduce it for 190,000 a year to 160,000. Do you think the government really wants to do that or they're just trying to say that out to society to make people feel a little bit better that things are going to slow down? The reality is, though, they do want to keep importing people.
2: Yeah, well, that was interesting. I mean, the target of 160 is where population growth had slowed to anyway for a number of reasons. So it wasn't really changing what was happening. It was just setting the target to match what what the numbers were showing us anyway. It wasn't saying, all right, we're going to reduce it, reduce anything. Um I do think New South Wales is worried and they do have, obviously, a lot of catching up to do. But if you look at the amount we are spending on infrastructure and some good things happening, you know, not just within the densest part of the city, but, you know, spreading out um, the, the the benefits to, to more um, the outer metropolitan areas, um, investing in things like the, the third Parkland City, as it's called, mm-hmm. um, you know... <laughs> that's going to take an awful long time and whether the people will go there is another question, but, you know. um, Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, So I think it's quite interesting, you know, when we we think about what population we can sustain – we do either need to go out or go up. Mm. And, you know, a second airport for Sydney has been coming for a long, long time. Gosh, I can Mm -hmm. remember the first year I was in the the workforce back in the dinosaur ages, you know, people looking at Badgeries Creek as it was then called. Um, And it was such a tough political decision. So to get it up and running is great. The idea that we'll have a third whole city there is something that's incredibly aspirational. But if you think about cities, they are this... It's a bit like a herd of cats, you know you can't you can't um, <laughs> herding cats, I should say. Yeah. you know you can't cities they, they they go over here and they go over there and you can plan them as beautifully as you like and you end up with Canberra mm. um, or or if you look to the UK Welling Garden City, you know they're these beautiful things that have no soul. and mm. I have to say Canberra has come on a huge way since I, I lived there 30 uh, odd years ago. Um, and it is starting now to get these quirky little areas that are that are evolving. But it does take decades. It takes mm. decades, mm. exactly. So this idea that we can get something up and running yep. um, around the airport, there will be jobs created and things, but it will take a long time. And if we think about just the central city around Parramatta, think how long that has taken. And it is taking. It's still in, in process and it's yes. a long way from where it was even 10 years ago but even the you know, the CBD and the um, the eastern city, like we still have a long way to go. There's still renewal and new development, and you know, I guess this is probably I'm going to lead us into this path around density because mm. population, you know, whatever governments say, the the state government fights this battle against local governments who are under constant siege from the NIMBY movement, mm. and it's very hard for them when there's this small but incredibly vocal bunch of people, including the Save Our Suburbs group that drives me nuts because <laughs> it's very misleading. And when, you know, yes, I understand people who've lived in a, in an area and they're on a quarter acre block, you know, and they're only 20 minutes um, trip from the CBD, they are the lucky ones. But when you suddenly get, you know, to your older age and you start to think about, well, you know, I've got three kids, as I said, in my 20s, they want to buy a house. The eldest one got married not long ago. They want to buy somewhere. Well, you know, what you can imagine what they would. Well, you would know only too, mm. too well, yep. what they can afford mm. uh, in this part of, you know, the city where we're, I'm lucky to live in the Lower north shore and they want to live near their family. And yep. because we've said no, it's incredibly hard for them mm. to get that first step because the deposit required is so high. So, you know, is it bad that they have to move away from their family and live a bit further out? Not necessarily, but it's not just about being near family. It's about being close to their jobs. It's about having all of the, the amenity. Um, and I worry about them, but not only the young ones trying to come in for whom affordability is such an issue, but if you want to encourage people like myself, that my kids move have moved out of home, so I should be downsizing, mm-hmm. you know, letting somebody else move into my place that's got a few extra rooms. But- what is there in my area mm. that I can actually downsize to? Now, I'm lucky that I am in an area where there there are a little bit more of a mix, uh, but, you know, in a lot of parts of, of Sydney, the NIMBYs have said no development here and then suddenly they want to downsize and there's nothing for them to downsize to because we don't have a good mix. And I don't mean by density put up millions and millions of high-rise 30-storey buildings. I mean, lots of different mixes of apartments can be low-rise as well as high-rise. You mm. can have town Houses, that middle, missing middle we talk about all the time. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess um, with the, you know, the, the middle suburbs, why do you think the NIMBY movement actually wins against the council and why doesn't the council kind of override that and say, no, we're going to change this to lots of townhouses rather than houses and we're going to change the rules around zoning. Why do you think that the NIMBYs generally always win?
2: I think because they have a very loud voice and I think you see at any level of election, whether it's local, state or federal, you do see that, you know, it's the squeaky wheel that um, makes the most noise and mm-hmm. it might just be one wheel, but it's it's the thing that, you know, sets everything else awry. Um, and I think it's about having the right conversations and educating people as to why density how density can be done well and why it needs to be done well. Because I think people, when they think of density, they tend to think of the absolute worst examples mm.
1: in the world. And We're there also are some her- Sydney. You know, there's some really bad suburbs where they have, you know, changed density and zoning oh. rules. And, yeah, you yeah. know, rides going through this change at the moment, mm. right? They, you know, they did open up the zoning rules. Next thing you know, they've got awful towers just coming up for fun. And they've gone, this isn't working. The council yep. can't sustain this. So I guess we haven't really, I don't, I find in Sydney, there's lots of suburbs that have changed the rules that haven't done it well. Do you agree or?
2: Well, I think, I think that's, that's an issue. So it's about, it's not about density, you know, whatever, open slather, let it rip as a, a friend of mine often says, I don't believe <laughs> in following those rules. I think, <laughs> I think we have planning regulations for good reason yep. and we need to make sure that, you know, whether it's to make sure that our buildings are, are safe uh, to make sure that we actually don't overcrowd and congest our, our areas that we don't create horrible dark wind mm. tunnels and things we need to be careful about that but there's no reason why we can't do it well mm. um and i think there's a balance between the let it rip and just have whatever happen um and and there are plenty of people who would say that the market will deliver what people actually want
0: yeah uh, and, I've got and a real no. argument on that because mm. the thing is that when you say the market delivers whatever people really want, and a lot of the worst examples of urban d- design, if I should use that word very, very loosely, the mm. word design, that mm. is. Um, look at Mascot, for instance. Um, mascot, just, you know, you go out to the airport and I'm, I'm shocked at how it's seemingly overnight, obviously yes, not overnight, quick. but but very, very quickly, you've got this complete change from very industrial, obviously, um, to very high-density uh, living, very same-same um pretty soul-destroying looking place, right? Now, I don't know the exact numbers on this, but I'm fairly confident that a lot of it was marketed to investors and overseas investors. So we're all sort of beyond the point where, you know, the the Chinese, for instance, are no longer Mm. buying here because they can't get the money out of China and et cetera, et cetera. And also the overseas investors, obviously, the state government has made it a little bit more expensive for them, so there's less of them around. But back when they were all being built, very heavily marketed to investors, now, investors aren't really buying stock with a mind of, well, do I want to live in it or who really wants to live in it? What sort of community do we want to develop? That is not in the mind of those individual investors that are likely to fall for the spruker, you know, and the sales pitch to buy one of those properties. So, that, so whenever anyone brings up that argument, I, I'm like, yeah, yes, you know, that is fundamental economics, isn't it? You You develop what somebody wants and they'll pay for it. What people want there isn't isn't actually a house or or an apartment. What people want there is is a way a vehicle to make money and it's it's a false promise it's a false dream mm. and on the back of that, we've got all these crap that's been built
2: mm. it's a look it's a, It's a very good point, and I think things have got complicated in Sydney and Melbourne because mm. of offshore investors mm. and the degree to which they were coming into the market, Yep. Obviously, changing regulations, not least from state governments on 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 taxation, have changed that, and it's a global ph- phenomenon that we see um, mm. because it was having a, an, an adverse impact on on the market and on affordability, apart from anything else. But you've got to kind of extrapolate from wh- what's the problem that we're dealing with. It's that we've created a false market, as you say, mm. and if we deal with the problem of foreign investors who come in who want to buy something who aren't going to live in it who don't necessarily and and that's not all foreign investments, but no. you know yep. for ones who, who are looking for something other than a place to live or a place that, you know, they can actually rent out as well, as obviously most most investors want, want that. Typically. To get to get it to get some <laughs> sort of um yield on their investment, not just a capital return, or sometimes not even that. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. if we <laughs> if we if we look at what individuals want, I think that we find and I think there's a reasonable amount of evidence to say that um the younger generation I hate saying that makes me sound so old but <laughs> but younger people coming into the market now um or first home buyers at least are prepared to live in smaller places to be closer to yep. the things that they need to and be this close is to not new. No.
0: I was mm. the same. Mm. Yeah. You know and I literally bought well I say literally I didn't actually buy a shoebox but I said I'd live in a shoebox in yeah. order to be closer to everything yeah. and my first place was 36 square meters. Yeah. Um you know 30 years ago I didn't like um. So this that I don't think that has actually fundamentally changed.
1: No. no. I, yeah, yeah. I think. I mean. I guess on the the development side, I think you know. Yes, we're going to build the greenfield sites, and you know they've been. I, I argue that they are not really long term and you know, a great decision because the block size every year has been getting less and less. It went from four hundred to oh, three fifty. I spoke to
0: someone who wanted to buy a house and land package on the other night. First home buyer. Um. It, Austral, I think, and I said, "How big's a block of land? Two hundred and forty square meters. Yeah, well, tiny."
2: This is the thing: is that it's that I find fascinating is that it's not even a question now of you know going out. You've you've kind of got to leave Greater Metropolitan Sydney, yes. and I mean, mm. you know, gr- right out to to, to Penrith to the Blue Mountains to, to be able to af- to afford something. Now, there are a lot of cities in the world, and this includes Tokyo, that everyone raves about as having this great public transport system, and you you get. Lots of people there commute for well over an hour. Mm. People in London, you know, in the big cities of the world, yeah. you know, when we well, go as tourists isn't it? to places, mm-hmm. we're, we're staying in these, you know, you know mm-hmm. B&B or you know, hotel down in the centre of somewhere or not too far yeah. out and we're off doing our touristy things and we get this false illusion about what living in some other city actually looks like. <laughs> yes, good um, you know, it's that's not what happens. Um, mm-hmm. People do commute quite a bit. And I think you know the Central Coast people since since the the was it the late eighties you know property boom when lots of people moved out. In fact, the subsequent bust of the market and and the, through the recession, people sold their homes in Sydney and moved up to the Central Coast. Mm. And there's a very good train line that goes you know it's about an hour from Woi Woi Gosford yep. into the mm. into the city, and you know it's connectivity quite a lot of the way, and mm. you can you know it's maybe that's a choice or a decision that some people will make if they want to have bigger areas. But if you just think about getting back to that density argument, you know, if you think about the cost to government, we can squeeze a lot more value out of our infrastructure. The cost per person of infrastructure is a lot lower. And I'll make this very simple for people. If you think about a row of 10 houses, okay, and think about the footpath that goes along and the curbing that needs to go Mm. versus uh three-storey block of units with those same 10 dwellings in it, Mm. which has a quarter of the cost. And you think, oh, footpath isn't very much. Let me tell you, it adds up and you Mm. add on Mm. the whole distance of new roads, the connectivity to having duplicating shops and things like that. You know, it's even simple things like, The value of community spaces, and now this is where it comes down to good design, because you can't keep building over your parks and your playgrounds Mm. and all that public open space has Mm. to be central to your design. Um, You have to make sure, and I know people complain about Green Square because of various issues but it does have public open spaces and yep. if you talk to people who live there the shared playgrounds the sense of community if people tell me oh yeah we have we we have we've, we've sort of started up an informal crèche so mm. people you know yep. it's And there are lots of studies that will show you this. They'll show you that your electricity bills are a lot lower if you're living in in a smaller space in an apartment than in a giant house, obviously. Mm. You know, you think about the sort of climate change that we're going through in Australia and what it's going to mean for temperatures, particularly if you live in Western City. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're already seeing it in central Melbourne, let alone outer Melbourne. But you think about, you know, around Parramatta, Penrith, the, the Western areas, they're huge um and and areas where there are no trees either. Mm. Mm. You know we have to think about all of these dimensions when we plan what is our future city going to look like.
1: Yeah, I think the're missing middle. Like I you know when you look at the satellite, you look at Sydney, it's obvious that you know there's such a huge opportunity. we can fit millions of more people in you know the five to ten to twenty k ring. But the problem is you've got houses on four six, eight hundred square meter blocks, right? And then the NIMby mentality comes in and says, No, no one can change anything. No one can cut those blocks up and turn it into townhouses. And the problem is what they're all worried about is that they're going to build poor quality townhouses or things that look the same or, you know, attract a different type of, um, demographic to the area and things like that. But, you know, one example I think is really good is Northcote in Melbourne. Um, because they are allowing people to cut up blocks, but to get the townhouse through council, it's got to kind of be architecturally designed. It's got to be different. It's got to look sustainable. It's got to look cool. Um, and so they're, they're they're kind of pushing back on NIMBY mentality and saying, well, no, no, that's fine. We're going to allow people to do it, but it's going to have much higher standards to get through council. And hmm. I think if you did that into a lot of the middle ring, it actually, you know, it doesn't, it's not a negative to the area. It's actually a positive. And then, you know, you start to.
0: Well, it all depends on what stocks there in the first place. I mean, if you're in a suburb like Haberfield, for argument's sake, Interesting suburb, really, because mm. in 1985 that was heritage listed. You know, mm. there's something quite special about that. That was mm. a garden estate, and there's gorgeous homes. And I think you know we don't want to be saying, oh, we want to mow down everything, and just in, in the sake of for the sake of progress. So I think this balance is obviously important. Yep. Um. Having said that, poor old Haberfield really suffered in the hands of West Connex. But anyway, that's another issue. So how the state government, however, can mow down heritage listed homes in a heritage listed suburb? Mm. No figure. Um. But, you know, I think but in other areas where there are industrial sites that, you know, where the land value is increased to it, to the level where it's no longer feasible to keep industri- industry there or because that's too close to a dense population or et cetera, et cetera, or the other reasons or the rezoning, then, you know, I guess that's where the NIMBYs need to sort of push back a little bit to so say, hang on a minute, we've, we've got an opportunity here to create. And I love that idea that you're talking about that we consider a, a diversity within our housing stock so mm. so that, you know, your kids can buy close by because there is some small properties and then they get onto the ladder and then they can trade up and yep. stay within the area and there's opportunity for that. And likewise, you downsize from your house and you don't have to go to a completely different area because there's no appropriate housing for you. So, I, you know, I like that and I think that that needs to be much more encouraged. I do know I've, I've actually got a friend of mine who is an urban planner and, and they do a lot of work with the state government you know there are there are certain um, uh, developments that have got that overlay of planning, but there's also plenty that don't. And I think that's really where governments could step in to say you can't actually rezone unless you've got yep. proper planning uh, uh, or master plan in place.
2: Yeah, it's and and they are there are lots of master plans that are you know that are constantly being upgraded and and trying to respond to this. Changing. Mm. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, there's an article the other day. Um, I think Collie has had it out uh, talking about we might Sydney might run out of industrial land soon. So we've got to be a little bit careful about mm. you know what you wish for. Um, yeah, and we all know you're know, getting to into the Port Botany. You know, for the for the freight to get out is just yeah. an absolute nightmare mm. uh, most of the time. So
1: and it, farmland, right? It's and yeah. it's, it's
2: how do we get that agricultural land? You know, much more of a problem for Melbourne than it is for Sydney, but. You know, now we're talking about a Western Parkland city, what does that mean for agricultural land? And yeah. there's a lot of talk about having an agribusiness precinct, which I actually think is one of the things that makes a lot of sense that close mm. to the airport. But you know, how much if you think about what the suburbs that are are involved around the the, the Western sit C- airport city deal, yep. um you take Wallandilly down to the south, which is, you know, much more country and and mm. you know, likes to be like that, but as been told you know your population's going to double over the triple over the next 10 20 whatever years yep. um you know much more hard even blacktown you know mm. 750,000 people by 2050 or so i yeah. mean wow. that's it's it's huge yeah. you know we are a growing city um and we have to somehow accommodate people because we're not a big enough country or economy at the moment to have the sorts of regional satellite cities yep. that that sometimes other countries do. You know, we've got Newcastle and and Wollongong, obviously Geelong for Melbourne, but it's not of the same. They're not alternate destinations. They don't have, they don't mirror, they're more commuter suburbs, unless you happen to work for for the university or, Mm. you know, some local industry, but it's much more limited in its opportunity. And Mm. so you end up just having people traveling up and down roads or or hopefully good train networks. Um, So it's, it's But what we need to do is almost step back where we're constantly going, what's happening now? What's happening in the market now? Quick, where's we need to catch yeah. up with this infrastructure? And sometimes we need to take a deep breath and, and go, okay, <laughs> let's think about Sydney with 7 million people yeah. or mm. 11 million people or, you know, what would that actually look like? How could we do that? There are plenty of other cities in the world that, And I love San Francisco. Mm. It's just a mishmash of stuff is all over the place and some of it's not so great. Mm. But I think it's a bit idealistic to think that any city is going to be perfect, that you aren't going to have some issues. Oh, of course. I don't think we can ever design something perfectly. But when we go forward now, the biggest mistake we can make is to not take account of that economic and social infrastructure when we do have our planning. And to make sure, like good design, I mean, Northcote, notwithstanding, you know, obviously good design can add to cost. I've heard people suggest, well, what if we had some designs that you could sort of go, all right, we're going to meet these standards, this standard and this standard and... Speeds up the process through mm. council. The They've shelf. been approved. I imagine it will take a long time to get them approved, but mm. yeah, a little bit off the shelf, mm. yep. so that and you can mix and match and do you know yep. individualized things, so you don't have all you know people in their little boxes. Well, of they do. Tacky, I mean, then they
1: have like certain materials you can use mm. that are, are straight mm. through, you know, and yeah. certain design elements that will be straight through. And I think it's important to have that. I think you made a really interesting point about the, the how things might change in the future and actually thinking about that and working such a big mm. part of that. And I guess. You know, there's a lot of concern around how work's going to change over time, working from home. Am I going to have a job? You know, you know, uh, are AI going to take over? What's your thoughts on kind of how the future of work's going to change in our cities and, you know, more broadly in Sydney, I guess. I'm so happy you asked that question.
0: Um, so <laughs> it's one does, of your pet topics. As is it? it so happens, <laughs> yes,
2: Deloitte Access Economics has just published, we publish every year something called Building the Lucky Country. And the latest one is on the future of work. And in it we do a little bit of myth busting. <laughs> and the first one is, you know, everyone's going, In fact, my oldest daughter, well, she goes a robot society. I'm so scared of robot society. <laughs> and the first myth that we bust is that robots aren't going to take everybody's jobs, at least not until you're ready for it. So there's um, a, an element, obviously, artificial intelligence and automation are already coming in, into places, but they tend to be good at low-skilled repetitive jobs. Mm. So for people who are of, you know, who have low skills, there is an element there that, you know, we need to make sure that we are educating our kids, the next generation of workers, that they will move up the skills level ladder um, to the next level so that, you know, they're not affected. And that's a whole lot of education policy yeah. and things that need to go to wrap around that. But there are lots of jobs that won't be taken. And for every job that is taken, we have always created more jobs than we destroyed. I mm. mean, you know, technology isn't new. It's, you know, we've been through, this is now what's known as the fourth industrial revolution. Yeah. And we find we're creating more. Now, some people have argued that we're actually at a bit of a tipping point and we will start to uh, destroy more jobs mm. than we create probably a little bit further away than the next 10 or 20 years I I'd, I'd say at the moment but you know you think about autonomous vehicles for a start you know okay well will that put uber and 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 others out out taxis out of out of business no because we still need people to design the software to manage the software there'll still be call centers so one of the things we've noted is there's a lot of what we call jobs of the head, so high tech skills uh, will will be needed, and we need lots more of those. We talked about that earlier in mm. in the program, mm. uh, but also what we call jobs of the heart, where EQ mm. is needed. Yeah, mm. and it's um, I heard somebody talking about this only yesterday, saying um, from point of view of education and one of the universities, saying I want people with strong IQ and EQ. Mm. It's not just about being smart; that's not enough. Is you see, have to understand and be empathic, empathetic yeah. with people.
0: I can see a change coming through the school system as well in terms of that, you know, my daughter goes to a private school and I know that, you know, that there's, she's only in year seven. So the conversations, you know, from the principal, from the teachers... It's very much around this. Well, the universities these days aren't relying on ATAR, ATAR is it called? It was HSC back when I did it. Yeah. <laughs> I
2: think it's ATAR these days. It was out of 500 <laughs> when I did it.
0: Um, now it's only out of 100 and they're all getting over 90, by the looks of it. but it looks um bit. So the universities aren't relying just on the marks. And in fact, often they're, they're offering places halfway through year 12 because they are looking at the whole person. Um, so, there is definitely a, a change in attitude, I think, and it is coming up through our schooling um, now to, to feed into that. And there's also someone who I think it might have even been Simon Russell, who, mm. our first episode, he's written a book on cyborgs. Um, mm. He's a behavioral scientist or behavioral fi- finance, hang on, behavior Bonus. What do they call it? Behavioral finance. anyway. Yep. Um, about the idea that, that robots can't have a conscience. And then you get all these real doomsdayers saying, oh, but that will come.
2: <laughs> yeah, well.
0: <laughs> I don't know. But yeah. for the moment, we know that we have conscience. You know, we, we care. You know, robots don't, well, I presume they don't care. So there is going to be that, that delineation, isn't there? And I think that's interesting to hear that, that
2: educators talking
0: about EQ being so important.
2: Yeah, and then, of course, the next myth is around um, the idea that the workforce has got really casualised. You know, everyone's ringing alarm yeah. bells. It's the gig economy, and that's why we're not wages aren't going anywhere. In fact, the casualised element of the workforce is twenty five percent, and it has been the same for about fifteen twenty years. Really? So mm. it hasn't hasn't in fact changed. Which is, but you know, never let the facts get in the way of a of a good story. Contracting though, as
1: well, like it's contracting growing, or is that not true as well? Is that a bit of a myth?
2: It's all a bit of a myth.
1: Yeah, okay, yeah. interesting.
2: There's, um, and and where does the know, data come from? Um, mainly from, from a range of um, the government sources, so the Bureau of Statistics, mm. the Household um, Survey data, yeah. um, HILDA data. Yeah. So there's, yeah, it's all, um, and surveys as well. Mm. But, yeah, no, it's not, it's, it's the evidence is, is pretty conclusive. Yeah. And yeah. we don't change jobs every two years. On average, we change every five years. Now, I suspect that's because older people like myself tend to stay in jobs a little bit longer. Mm. Um, but for and maybe younger people do tend to to move. But my twenty-something oldest daughter has been in her current job for seven years Mm. and I've only been in mine for two. So, Mm. you know, it's all mix and match. That's not a very statistically significant sample, but it's (laughs) anecdotal evidence here. (laughs) But, you know, and I think I think younger people are, you know, definitely less worried about it, but which means there's more opportunities for them. And Coming back to your point, because earlier about um, the you know what what does this mean for the way we live and mm. work and where where we are. Yep. The final myth we bust is is about um, remote working, and it's one of the interesting things we found was that around one in twenty five firms that we surveyed offered some. Sorry, one in five firms offered some sort of flexible work practice, mm. but only one in twenty five people, four percent of the population, actually were acting on that, and wow. often not in a regular basis. So people feel the need. Now, there's some things that are cultural, you know, like, oh, gosh, if I'm not at my desk, people will think I'm not doing anything. And that's yes. still a part mm-hmm. of it. Um, and there's some some bosses who are not, not that good. Um, where I work, most people probably work from home one day a week. It's yeah. great to be out of particularly an open yeah. plan office to have time to think and quiet and, you know, save yourself the travel time, et cetera, yeah. um, which is good. But when... One of the biggest reasons why that won't ever change really significantly is because we like to agglomerate. We like to have Connection. face-to-face con- conversations. Mm. We like to have you know, our, our colleagues around the corner that we can go and see. And you see this interestingly with universities that are offering online courses. You hear a lot of students saying they're becoming disengaged mm. if they don't get that face-to-face time and that ability to 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 meet their peers and to make friendships and this is how great ideas happen and mm. we know from things like from the basis of Silicon Valley you know people getting together in a pub in Ireland to you know all these these little anecdotes that we have around how getting people together to agglomerate and whether it's it or it's finance or whatever the, the mm. sector is that agglomeration creates all sorts of benefits of ideas you draw in more new firms and we we get the benefits of higher growth, of higher productivity growth. And Australia is not getting that at the moment. And our cities are letting us down in their design because we don't have these hubs that we can get. In Australia, we now have only one in 10 firms is a new firm, as opposed to one in 14, sorry, 14, sorry, 10% versus, I'm getting all mixed up, sorry. (laughs) So only so 10% of firms are now new firms coming in, starting up something new mm. compared to about 14% about five years ago. Mm. We want really? lots of new firms. You don't want lots lots of turnover of people mm. going under, but that always happens mm. as well. But we want new and bright firms because that's where productivity grows mm. most strongly. Yeah. And that's really good for our economy. If we're going to grow our jobs, if we're going to grow our wages, that's where we're going to and get our economy back on a better platform than it is at the moment. That's where we need to have it. But what that means for where you live, yeah, it's still saying at the moment that comes back to that density argument and being closer to where you work and not having to travel long distances. We are a long way still from having that. You know, we can live anywhere, and yep. you know, we'd all love to sit on the beach and with our laptop. Well, actually, sit on the beach yep. without the laptop, but yeah, you know right. what I mean. <laughs> um, but it's just not as feasible um,
1: That's at the bit moment. That's
0: a pipe dream, then. I mean, I think, um, so I work in co-working
1: spaces and, you know, co-working spaces, you know, 2019 are much better than they were in 2014. Sure. Right. Mm. And you know, the options in 2014 were like Regis and Surfcorp and mm. Solus sort of mm. places, nothing against them, but even they've evolved, Yeah, even they've thrown out their old model and said, we've got to pick up the speed here and go mm. the new way. Um, but co-working spaces are now starting to open up in regional places. And so, you know. The ability of working at home is, yes, you want to be around people and I don't want to be sitting in my office that's dark and, you know, with bad internet and, you know, you know kids <laughs> running around and the neighbours mowing the lawn and et cetera, et cetera. And that's the problems of working at home. But if you could go to a co-working club or, or space that's near home where other people are working on professional jobs for a couple of days a week and then I commute a couple of days a week, those things don't exist right now, but they're starting to, to open up. So, is that? Do you think things like that will change the work from home sort of argument, where you only commute a certain number of days?
2: Yeah, I've, I'm I'm seeing this all all over the place, and it's it's not just with um you know tech hubs like Stone and Chalk where mm. they mm. they offer all these additional things. So it's like yeah. come and listen to this person speaking, yep. or yep. you know we're having an expert in startup finance coming in this week. So it's all that additional stuff. So it's not just about people in the co working space, which is really important. Um, but it's also for creative people, for example. So you can be in there as a. Um, my youngest daughter is a mm. stand-up comedian and musician. Okay. That's mm-hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. That's what creative. Can, what can you do? <laughs> but she got a scholarship for a, a co-working space in. She's in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and the friendships and the partnerships that she's yep. been able to make mm. over the space of a few months, rather than sitting isolated at home mm. trying to come up with ideas. It's a fantastic opportunity and I think so all these creating spaces Mm. are fantastic as well for it doesn't just have to be around technology. There are lots of opportunities. Obviously the creative types, particularly if you're a musician, (laughs) means you don't have a lot of money to spend Mm. and so a regional co-working space is probably going to work much better for you than perhaps you know something right down in the CBD, mm. but interestingly but, yeah. enough
0: even even if we have you know these great regional hubs with co-working spaces mm. and in remote working as a consequence of this, interestingly enough, it's still density, isn't it?
2: People yeah. are still gravitating towards each other. Mm. It's exactly right. It's the exchange of ideas. And if you go right back to caveman times, you know mm. we are community animals. Mm. Mm. that's it. And I think often when you think about some of the mental health issues we have in our populations, it's because people feel disenfranchised and disconnected and they don't know where they're going we we are this sometimes that when you stretch the city out it's very big and impersonal and you know if you can mm. live in neighborhoods where there is that community space where you do connect with your neighbors that you know you help mrs jones mm. next door who's 90 something and by taking in her rubbish bin once a week and mm. making sure you know she mm. you got an extra slice of cake you pop in and say hi or mm. you know People who help each other and, you know, neighbourhood block parties and street posts and know each other, Mm. it makes such a difference. You know,
0: Uh, anecdotally, I've heard a a few people that had lived in sort of inner city areas or inner areas, shall we say, um, and had their first or second child and decided that, look, that now they really need to go out and get the big home in in the burbs and... Two different anecdotes. One was from the eastern beaches and one was from the inner west. And they both went, at, well, it happened to be the Shire, and I'm not really picking on the Shire. I did grow up there, but, you know, I would never live back there again. But anyway, that's because I'm an urban creature. Mm. But these guys went out to the Shire and they did what they thought was the right thing for their families, their young families, and bought a big home and, and had the big backyard and the swing set and trampoline and all that sort of palaver. And then felt so isolated they turned around and moved back. Mm. Um, and they said, well, the thing is we're having all that space to yourself is that you don't need to go to the park. You don't need to get yourself out of your own place Mm. and meet new people because everyone's got their own backyard and if you grew up there and you went to school there, you've already got your networks. You don't actually need to go out there and meet new Mm. people. It's really quite Mm. difficult for the, as I said, only two examples and I'm – Sorry if you live in the Shire. Mm. Um, <laughs> they're very proud. <laughs> they're very proud. I know when, when I tell people I, I grew up in the Shire, they're like, oh, my God, and you left? Yeah. Yep, I'm one of the 5%. Um, and that's just a made-up figure, by the way. Um, but, yeah, there is, there, you know, and that is important that we tend to forget that. We've, mm. or we or we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what we're experiencing in the area. We're experiencing mm. it. And we get somewhere different and think, Oh, (laughs) that's how it rolls in this area. So I think this density, I mean, that's another, I guess, benefit of density. Mm.
1: But I mean, I can see even in the city, there's people are just as lonely in the city. Yeah, well, people have died in apartments
0: um, in Surrey Hills. Yeah, I mean, Mm. it's,
1: you know, one-bedders that are studios and two-bedders and no one knows their neighbours. No one knows who's in the building. So that doesn't solve the problem, you say. Yeah, it's (laughs) so it's, it's, you know, and it's, you know, you get into the lift and no one talks to each other and no one knows each other in the building and, You know, so sometimes, you know, the city, just having a a building more in the city and living in the city doesn't mean that you're going to be any less lonely, I guess. Yeah, fair enough. Um, And I mean, I guess that's a lot of these new buildings and co-living and things like that are trying to solve this problem where they're trying to say, let's bring this building to life. Let's Mm. make sure everyone knows each other and, you know, and I think that'll change. I guess, um, you know, around technology, how do you think it's going to, you know, be able to change housing and the impacts of things like climate change? Because... You know, I guess we are in a, you know, this week, for example, I know we're, we're always a few weeks behind, but there's meant to be some massive waves coming, um, you know, eight metre waves hitting the East Coast and things like that. You know, a couple mm. of years ago, um, Collaroy got smashed. Um, you know, there's potentially rising sea levels. You know, how do you think these issues are going to affect our kind of real estate market? they're going to have
2: profound effects. But Australians, not not just Australians, people are very, very bad at um, understanding future events and bringing them back to what do I need to do now. It's the reason people smoke because they have a cigarette and they don't fall down dead. Um, (laughs) It's actually a really
1: good point, actually. My wife's studying psychology and, um, you know, she was talking about this the other day. And it's it's the consequence to your actions, isn't it? The gap is too far. Mm. So... If we do something today, right. there's no consequence. That's not good for our health or good for the environment. The consequence is so far ahead in, in the future that we, can, our brains just cannot Uncomputed. connect with it.
2: Well, we also value it less even when we do connect with it. So there's an economic concept yes. that we talk about, discount rates. Mm. So we say the value of a dollar today is worth a lot more. If you say I'll give you a dollar today or $2 in, in a year's time, you go, mm. well, I'm going to take the dollar today mm. you know, like because we discount that value. Now, the, there's an, a lot of debate amongst economists at the moment about whether the, the current discount rates that, that we use in policy decisions are too high. And one of the areas where this is actually there is a slightly lower rate but we think it should be a lot lower is on how when you're measuring climate change policies mm. because you do need to say it's not the, the, the damage that will be done in the future of our actions today is so great that we shouldn't be discounting it by a big big mm-hmm. amount. We right. should actually be keeping it very close to kind of what it is today because it's just the magnitudes are, are, are so, so great. But we are doing, you know, little by little there are things that we are doing. And I think with energy efficiency in homes, for example, there's some great things that we're doing. You know, some community housing, I know New South Wales government has a program where they're working with community housing developers to make sure there's more energy efficient, um, some retrofitting but also more energy efficiency built into new homes and that includes appliances and things. You know, there's there are lots of things that we can be doing to reduce our demand for energy. But irrespective of what we do, the experts and, you know, people dispute what experts know or don't know, but they are the warnings about what climate change we're going to see, so temperature rises, sea level rises, is going to be, well, we were looking at saying one one and a half percent this century, then now we're talking two percent, and now the standard modelling says no, we're going to look at four percent scenarios. Now you think, mm. oh, what does that mean? What is, it, you know, it's it, it's four percent sea level temperature rise. I I don't know what that means for me. It means many many more events, mm. like serious events, let alone the the sea rises. Now, so we heard obviously in in the last week, you know, when the prime minister was in in um, uh, Tuvalu talking about where well, we're already seeing sea level rises and the impact that's having on our on our little island. Mm. Yes. Australia is a giant island, but most of us live very close to the, coast. the shore. Mm. So for those that do, you know, we already see a lot of erosion. Um, we will see sea level rises. You think about what's in the CBD and think about something like yeah. Circular Quay. Yeah, there's some giant new buildings going up right mm. in front of the Cahill Expressway. Mm. Now what will that be like in, in 50 years' time? I mean, a lot of people who live, you know, a couple of blocks back from the beach joke, oh, well, this is great. I'll have a waterfront property in 50 years' time. <laughs> mm. But it isn't a joke. No. It's very, very serious. And it's not just... for Sydney sea level rises is probably the the biggest thing if you're living in the eastern side. Extreme heat is probably much more of an issue, Well, is obviously it's much more point. of an issue if you're least, living in, in the west. Yeah. If you live in North Queensland the intensity and frequency of um, uh, hurricane, cyclone mm. events. In Melbourne, it's intense heat and parts of its sea Body. level rises as well. Uh, fire, obviously, mm. in, in um, uh, uh, Western Victoria and, and South Australia. So we have all these different types of things that are happening. Mm. And we need to be starting to say, what are the sorts of things that we put in? So we did some work quite a quite a while ago now for with Suncorp, where um, I worked with um, James Cook University with their mm. engineers, and we looked at different options for actually making housing more cyclone proof. And mm. that was going to help because premiums were getting insurance premiums yeah. for people in those areas were just getting so large because there's so many much more damage being done more frequently. It's you know we had Yazzie and then we had I can't remember the name of all the cyclones, yeah. but we've been having an awful
1: lot of them. Well, there was one last year called Cyclone Veronica. That's right. Did everyone see that?
0: <laughs> Finally, I'm famous. You know, actually, I'm i should more like I never so. said that to you, but oh, I was you're... like, oh,
1: here we go. Know, a... When I was about 19,
0: <laughs> Elvis Costello came out with a song called Veronica and I was so excited I bought the tape and I put in on the tape deck of my car and I'm driving along and listen to it. It was about his 70-year-old senile <laughs> grandmother. So, you know, when people use the name Veronica for <laughs> things, it's never good.
2: <laughs> oh, dear. I don't know, Veronica from the Archies was pretty cute. Oh, that's she? <laughs> true. She was cute.
1: <laughs> Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Nikki, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories.
2: Yeah. So this comes from from something I was asked um, only the other day, um, you know, obviously, when you're in an environment where interest rates are falling, um, people are looking to to chase lower lower interest rates, and mm. and we're encouraged to say, you know, people are saying, well, go out there and demand that your bank give you something better, and yeah, some people have more luck than others, and you really do have to be very bullshit about it. If you can't get your bank to do it without having some another piece of paper, yeah, uh, from someone else, um, or you decide that you can do something from someone else. I just say be careful because it might seem like a great deal if you're going from 3.4% to 2.99%, but work out what all the costs are. Read all the small print detail. Can you still pay off your loan the way Mm. you could earlier? Can you make early repayments? What are the transactional costs? You know, if you have to get the lower rate, you have to fix in for two years, but we actually think, you know, rates are going to fall further. Is that a smart decision to Mm -hmm. make? You know, there are lots of hidden costs in the transaction. Yes, I absolutely encourage people, go for the lowest ones, make those banks or whoever's lending you the money, earn your business. Mm. But be really prepared, do your homework, and it might take you a while. You might have to come home from work and feel very tired, but after dinner, get online, do some research or, you know, use a broker, but get there and say, all right, I want to know what's the best deal that you can do for me and work out, is it worth all of, how much are you going to save and is it going to be enough to make it worth all of the other transactional costs? Is it just going to be your mortgage? Are you going to have to take over your bank accounts? Yeah. All of those sorts of things. So just be prepared, do your homework and work out what the total transactional costs are, not just the difference in the interest rate, but make your bank work for you. Oh, that is so true. And look, it's so tempting to chase interest rates, especially
0: when they're being advertised so low. But yeah, you've got to definitely look at the total cost. Thank you so much for joining us, Nikki. I feel like we could have talked for another hour. You know, yes. there's so many things that we just scratched the surface of that we could, um, you know, really de- delve further into. Maybe we'll have to get you back. Um, we will definitely put the links in the show notes on the reports that you mentioned. I think there's a couple of reports, actually. There's a future of work and there's another one on on density and population yes. growth um, we will include in the, in the show notes. Um, and, yes, food for thought. And I think, you know... I, once again, this is the premise of this whole podcast is we want people thinking, you know, these decisions that we make around property are important. They're big, they're potentially costly. They can set you up or screw you up. Um, And so, you know, coming along and sharing some of the research and the thinking that you've been part of uh, is fabulous. And we appreciate your time.
2: It's been a great pleasure to be here.
1: Thank you.
0: We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training follows on from Nikki's Dumbo. Now, this is right up Chris's alley. And Chris can actually elaborate on more tips on what you can do if you're trying to get yourself a better interest rate.
1: Generally, when you sign up at a new bank, you know, you have got a couple of hundred dollars, you know, a valuation fee or a settlement fee. So that might take you from $350 to about $600, let's call it. Um, You're probably gonna have to pay a package fee again, which you probably have already just paid, or you might have paid six months ago mm. at your old bank. So there may be another four hundred bucks in. um, You then got you know a couple hundred dollars in government costs. So <laughs> you have to deregister a mortgage, and then you have to reissue the mortgage because you have to swap the bank. So that's about three hundred bucks. So you know you are. So looking, I've been counting. Yeah, thirteen hundred. About thirteen hundred. Mm. If you add the package fee, in which yeah. a lot of brokers don't add in, but sometimes you've just paid the package fee mm. and you don't get a refund. So mm. you've you've already got to be at thirteen hundred dollars now. If you've got a a mortgage of under five hundred thousand, you know you're already talking like point two point three percent straight away. You've got to be winning by in the first year. Um, and so it's got to be quite a big discount for you to make sense. If you've got a big mortgage though, like a million dollars or one point five, your, your transaction fees are kind of fixed. So you know it it actually makes sense to kind of be on it a bit more. But I mean. Before you even do that, you know, you're probably best to just call your bank and call your retention team and just say, look, I'm going to leave. Um, and, you know, probably a go-to pers- to person to say is probably ING or Macquarie or something like that. <laughs> Go on their websites because their rates are published uh, and say that they've offered me, you know, whatever they're offering. Um, the problem is when you refinance, and this is where people, a lot of people think, is, you know, right now you've got banks like Bank of Queensland, Virgin, um, a few other banks that are offering 2.99 for three years. And it's getting advertised a lot. Yeah. Um. The problem is just because a bank's offering you that rate, it doesn't mean that you qualify. Um. And this is where a lot of people get confused. And a lot of banks also, they they offer something called an introductory rate. Mm. And so you get, yes. you know, it's like a, a little <laughs> carrot, Um. you know, you can get offered this rate and they don't know that it's just for two years. And you are taking a huge risk there because if in two years' time you cannot refinance because your situation has changed, Um, you could go up to a much higher rate and then shoot yourself in the foot. So you've got to be careful. It's not an introductory rate. Um, And don't get too excited because you've got to make sure you qualify. Um, And a lot of people aren't qualifying because of changes to their work. They could have a limited policy. They might not service, et cetera. So, there's lots to it. Um,
0: and Nikki did also mention about the package, what's in the features of the loan as well. So, you know, if you don't have the offset account facility or you don't have the ability to pay down the loan, you know, that, that can cost you as well over time.
1: Yeah, and the, the other thing is, is just because the rate is fixed, well, it, they're offering you it today, a lot of the, the lenders, a lot of the smaller lenders, you know, these are non-banks, um, you know, new lenders that are techni- technology kind of lenders that are coming out the way that they get their funding is not as secure and it's not as stable Mm. Mm. as say the big four and a lot of the second tier lenders and you know, a lot of their funding, you know, margin can very quickly move and they can go from making lots of money to losing money. And there is a risk if there is a bit of a crisis or credit does get tight, they get smashed. And so they're offering these amazing rates now but it's not without the risk that, you know, you could find that they could lift the rate on all their existing customers much easier than say a big forward. So you just got to be careful that it's not a risk-free guaranteed rate.
0: Please join us for our next episode when we interview Kylie Davis. Now, we've interviewed her before about a completely different topic. This episode is all about prop tech. What is prop tech, you may ask? It's that lovely marriage of property and technology. Now, we talk about whether this solves problems for consumers or agents or even builders and... Who is going to benefit the most? Where is the innovation most exciting? And how is PropTech likely to change basically everything that is related to property?
1: Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter.
0: Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you.
1: Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you.
0: The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Risk. editorial by Gordy Fletcher.
1: Until next week, don't be a dumbo.
0: Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances
1: with a statement of advice.